The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Blazing the Trail Forward in the Therapeutic Management of Bladder Cancer. Expert insights on incorporating the latest evidence and treatment advances into practice across the disease continuum. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash MWV 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Welcome all of you to the Blazing the Trail Forward in the Therapeutic Management of Bladder Cancer. Dr. Silpa Gupta, Dr. Kala Sridhar and myself, Petros Grivas, we're very excited to have you here. And we're very excited to communicate with you the real changes that are happening real time in the field of urothelial cancer. There are many unanswered questions and, and many ongoing real time practical questions in the field of bladder cancer. And one of them has to do with that only a third of the patients with non-muscle invasive bladder cancer are given intravesical BCG when BCG is an established treatment for patients with early stage non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. And we know that there are national shortages of BCG in the United States that can impact, of course, patient treatment, and of course, the limited access can be a major issue. Another practical problem is that about half of the patients with muscle invasive bladder cancer worldwide may not receive curative intent therapy. And that's important because access to care, again, can impact outcomes. Patients who have undergone radical cystectomy for muscle invasive disease often have impaired quality of life and high risk of recurrence. And there are many other questions that we're dealing with every day when we deal with our patients. So Dr. Silpa Gupta is going to take us through the potential answers to those questions and how recent advancements in the systemic therapy of high-risk normal invasive disease and muscle invasive disease are actually impacting the way we treat these uh, cancer types these days. Moreover, we're going to tackle more questions. For example, in metastatic disease, we're going to see that more than half of the patients may not receive first-line systemic therapy, and we're changing that through the development and validation of new therapeutics and incorporation of those new therapies in clinical practice that we think are improving outcomes and moving the needle forward. And we're very excited about that. At the same time, we're continuing clinical trial enrollment, and we have many clinical trials to talk about. However, the accrual in clinical trials remain very low, less than 3%. So we have to do better as a community, as a team across the globe to accrue and enroll more patients in clinical trials. Dr. Sridhar is going to discuss how we can optimize the first-line management of advanced urothelial cancer with many insights into that important field. Moreover, additional questions have to do with how many patients we have in clinic, right, who progress on first or second line therapy, and many of them may not receive subsequent therapies. And over the last five years, we have many agents approved. We had five checkpoint inhibitors, two antibody drug conjugates, and a targeted therapy uh, FGFR inhibitor approved in this setting. How can we optimally sequence these agents and optimize the outcomes of patients by using those important therapies? And also therapies after the immunotherapy setting, right, when people progress, have tumor progression immunotherapy, how can optimally use antibody drug conjugates, target therapies, and clinical trials? So I'm going to discuss with you about recent updates in personalized management after cancer progression, treated disease. As an overview, this is the, uh, what I call the 2,000 feet. We have patients with non-muscle invasive disease, and the ma vast majority of patients 
with bladder cancer present with non-muscle-based bladder cancer early on. And we treat these patients with maximum TURBT or intravesical treatments like BCG or intravesical chemotherapy. And many, some of those patients require radical cystectomy left node dissection with the standard of care for patients with BCG unresponsive high-risk non-muscle-based disease and patients with very high-risk disease maybe in earlier stages. And intravenous pembrolizumab has a role in, in, in some select patients with BCG unresponsive non-muscle-based disease uh, based on FDA approval. In muscle-based disease, we have patients receiving new cisplatin-based chemotherapy, either with dose-dense and VAC with growth factor or with gemcitabine cisplatin, and then these patients may get radical cystectomy left node dissection if they are fit for cisplatin, and of course, we have many clinical trials in that setting. And a proportion of patients may get bladder preservation with a maximum TURBT and followed by concurrent chemoradiation, and we're going to see also some trials in this setting. And I think bladder preservation is going to become more common in the future as we go forward. And as I mentioned, metastatic disease, we're going to discuss major developments. In the adjuvant setting, we're going to discuss the recent approval of adjuvant evolumab and other trials in this setting. So overall, we're going to cover the total spectrum of bladder cancer from early stage to late stage. Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network is an excellent resource for professionals, for patients and caregivers. I highly recommend this resource to all my patients, all the families, and to the medical staff, the medical teams. Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network, we pronounce it as a beacon of hope and beacon of light. It's a very important resource, and they have information online. They have brochures, written, printed materials. And, of course, there are phone numbers, there are emails that patients can connect with other patients and caregivers, survivors, so you can get more information about support and treatment options. We use chemotherapy, radiation, intravesical treatment, antibody drug conjugates, FGF inhibitors, immunotherapy. All these therapies uh, can, be, uh, ha can have side effects, and how to deal with them, it's a matter of a, a supporting system, and Beacon provides this excellent supportive system for those patients and information, of course, for them. So I'm going to start with a case here. I'm not going to tell you how we treat them, but I'm going to ask Dr. Sridhar and Dr. Gupta in a little bit. 58-year-old gentleman presented with hematuria. This is the most common presentation of bladder cancer is blood in the urine, and it requires workup, and good kidney function, no medical comorbidities, cystoscopy, tasurethal bladder tumor resection, CAT scan with IV contrast, good kidney function, as I said, showed a, a sessile mass in the anterior bladder wall, uh, the diagnosis was localized muscle vesicular carcinoma of the bladder, no metastasis. The patient uh, is discussing options with you. The question here is, how do you treat these patients? Do you go with new adjuvant chemotherapy followed by radical surgery or bladder preservation? And what are the clinical trial options and the start of care options? So without further delay, I'm very excited to present and uh, introduce Dr. Silpa Gupta. Dr. Gupta is an associate professor in the Department of Hematology and Oncology and the director of the GU Oncology Program at the Tausi Cancer Institute in Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. She has made major contributions in the field, and uh, I'm so happy that she's there because I was in Cleveland Clinic a few years ago, and Dr. Gupta taking the program to the next level. She's going to discuss recent advancements in the systemic therapy of high-risk non-muscle-based bladder cancer and muscle-based bladder cancer. Silpa. Thank you, Petros. I'm really excited to be here with Dr. Sridhar and you to discuss the advances in bladder cancer across the stages. And we'll talk about the uh, high-risk non-muscle invasive bladder cancer and muscle invasive bladder cancer. So what is the evidence supporting immune checkpoint inhibitors in high-risk BCG unresponsive non-invasive non-muscle invasive bladder cancer? We have the phase two keynote 057 study, which was one of the first studies which established uh, 
efficacy of pembrolizumab monotherapy in these patients who were either not candidates or refused to undergo cystectomy. At the time, it did show uh, some promising response, and now we have a lot of new trials uh, coming up which are showing even uh, better responses. To contrast this with the phase two SROG uh, S1605 study, which uses atezolizumab monotherapy, that shows the primary endpoint was complete response at six months. It was seen in 27% patients, quite similar to pembrolizumab. And in the updated results, response duration was more than six months and CR in 20 patients. Notably, this is not FDA approved for the setting, only pembrolizumab is in select patients who um, meet the criteria. So what are the other investigational strategies in this setting? In the BCG-exposed patients, the Keynote 676 study is looking at BCG versus BCG and pembrolizumab, and similar trials with Checkmate uh, 7G8 with nivolumab and ADAPT bladder trial, which uses darvalumab and radiation. And BCG-naive setting, the phase three trial, Potomac, which is looking at different options of just BCG induction and darvalumab, BCG induction maintenance and dervalumab, and BCG induction and maintenance as the control arm with endpoints of disease-free survival. So over the coming years, we will see what these studies show. There are also other trials in BCG-naive setting, like CREST trial, which is a novel subcutaneous checkpoint inhibitor, and BCG, and the ALBEN trial with atazolizumab. Switching gears to muscle-invasive bladder cancer, we know that neoadjuvant chemotherapy followed by cystectomy is offered to most patients. However, a lot of patients are not candidates for cystectomy, and they meet the criteria for bladder preservation or trimodality approach, which really is desired by patients whenever possible. So this phase two trial of pembrolizumab and gemcitabine, along with concurrent hypofractionated radiation, was presented at uh, presented last year. And they show that a median follow-up of 14 months for the efficacy cohort, the primary endpoint of estimated one-year bladder intact disease-free survival rate was 88%. Complete response rate was 77% three months after radiation. And there were some immune-related adverse events uh, which were manageable, uh, although requiring steroids. And um, this year at ASCO, we saw several abstracts which do show more uh, evidence of these uh, trial in progress uh, of ongoing studies. And moving forward, we will see what the phase three studies like Keynote 992, SWOG-1806, and INSPIRE studies show. And in this, again, uh, the phase two immune preserve study checking darvalumab and tremilumumab, which is an anti-CTLA-4 antibody with concurrent radiation therapy. In this study, complete responses were observed in 26 out of 32, that is around 80% patients. Two patients had residual muscle invasive disease and four patients were not evaluated. Disease-free survival with intact bladder was 73%, and we need to continue to doing uh, such trials. Notably, this study did have grade three to four treatment-related adverse events in 31% patients, and could be that temilumumab is causing uh, those increased rates. Um, as compared to single-agent PDL1 or PD1 inhibitor. And there's a lot of new approaches with immune checkpoint inhibitors and other novel intravesical delivery approaches, like the TAR200, which is like a pretzel, so to speak, which is an intravesical drug delivery system, which enables sustained release of 
gemcitabine into the bladder. And there's a lot of uh, innovative um, methodologies involved in this, and in future it may be possible to give other, other drugs intravesically. And there's several trials going on in this uh, space with TAR-200 alone or in combination with immunotherapy. And, um, for example, in this study, the safety and preliminary efficacy of TAR-200 was um, an alternative option for muscle-invasive bladder cancer patients who want to preserve their bladder or are unable to get cystectomy. And uh, the most common um, side effects were urinary incontinence, and uh, there were not other major systemic side effects with this. There's, this trial is looking at phase, this is a phase one trial of uh, TAR-200 in patients with muscle-invasive bladder cancer who um, were unfit or refused curative intent therapy. And uh, as we can see here, the preliminary data looks like response rates of 40% at three months, median overall survival of 20 months, duration of response of about a year, and there's several combination trials, uh, certainly ongoing uh, phase two and phase three, like the Sunrise uh, trials, which will inform us more in the coming uh, years. Now, what's the data about TURBT and chemoimmunotherapy alone for muscle-invasive bladder cancer? That is, you treat them with chemo and immunotherapy with the hope of not requiring cystectomy. Dr. Galski presented this uh, study of 75 patients last year, Patients underwent uh, chemotherapy along with immunotherapy, nivolumab, uh, and uh, if patients had clinical complete response, they, there was the option of no cystectomy, and if patients did not have uh, clinical response, there was uh, cystectomy was required. In this study, clinical complete response rates were 48%, and notably some patients did require eventual uh, cystectomy. So larger trials are needed to further uh, study this approach. New adjuvant chemotherapy with cisplatin-based regimens remains the gold standard to date. Initially, the MVAC uh, was the regimen that uh, set the stage for new adjuvant cisplatin-based chemotherapy when possible. There was a 2.6-year median overall survival benefit, and in the current era, we usually use gemcitabine and cisplatin um, and dose-dense MVAC in uh, a group of fit patients. There are several neoadjuvant phase two trials uh, which have utilized adding checkpoint inhibitor to chemotherapy, including the BLAST1 trial, which we led with Gemsys and nivolumab. Notably, the PCR rates, if we exclude CIS, were 34%, but if CIS is included, which is the guidance, uh, you know, that CIS really does not dictate that definition, it was over 50%. Response rates was downstaging was 66%. Several other trials using different immunotherapy partners like pembrolizumab or atezolizumab have also shown comparable results of significant downstaging and CR rates compared to traditional historical rates with gemesis only. The SAC trial was just reported at ASCO, and in this, the primary endpoint of event-free survival was met with 76%. Dervalumab was the immunotherapy partner, and the response rates were quite similar to other studies. There are several ongoing phase three trials with new adjuvant immunotherapy in both cisplatin ineligible and cisplatin eligible space. In the cisplatin ineligible space, pembrolizumab is being partnered with enfortumavidontin and antibody conjugate. In another um, SWOG trial, there is uh, the 
pembrolizumab pembrolizumab or placebo with sorry, GEMCARBO with uh, Evalumab. This is called the GAP trial, which just launched recently. And the VOLGA trial is Dervalumab and Temilumumab within 40 mavitontin. And these are all cisplatin-sparing regimens since these patients are cisplatin-ineligible. And the cisplatin-eligible patients, there are several trials looking at GEMCIS plus an immunotherapy and or and 40 mavidontin. Now, what about using antibody drug conjugate in neoadjuvant study? We do have now data uh, from the EV103 cohort H, where a patient was cisplatin ineligible, T2 to T4A node negative patients, up, upper tract uh, disease was not allowed, ECOG performance status 0 to 2, patients were treated with neoadjuvant EV monotherapy for three cycles, and pre-cystectomy imaging was done, and then patients underwent radical cystectomy. And recently reported uh, data showed that the pathologic uh, objective response rate was around 37%, which is really encouraging with a single uh, agent infortumab with, without pembrolizumab or any other immunotherapy, and downstaging rates were 50%. Now, switching to adjuvant therapy, we know that the Invigor 010 study, which compared atezolizumab versus observation in high-risk uh, patients who had residual disease after neoadjuvant treatment or who were cisplatin ineligible and had residual disease at cystectomy, the primary endpoint of disease-free survival was not met, and the overall survival also was not met. And uh, this study, however, has informed us to use CTDNA-based approach to identify which patients may derive benefit from atezolizumab, as was seen in this. The CHECKMATE 274 is the first positive study setting the stage for adjuvant immunotherapy, and it led to nivolumab approval in August of last year. It met the primary endpoint of disease-free survival. However, the overall survival data has not been reported yet, and we are eagerly waiting for that. The third trial, Ambassador, utilized pembrolizumab versus observation in the same patient population. It has finished accrual and should read out later this year. This slide shows that Checkmate 274, where one year of nivolumab treatment led to an improvement in disease-free survival by about 12 months, leading to the FDA approval. The benefit was more pronounced in pdl one positive subset. However, that, was, uh, that is not required to use nivolumab. The safety was uh, not unexpected, what we already know from nivolumab, some immune-related adverse events which were easily manageable, and um, there was nothing new uh, seen in this study. So coming back to the case that Dr. Grievous described, 58-year-old man presented with hematuria, good renal function, implying that can get cisplatin. There's no comorbidities which preclude the use of cisplatin and uh, looks like the mass is located in the anterior bladder and localized disease, no distant metastases. What should we do? Should we do neoadjuvant chemotherapy followed by cystectomy or bladder preservation? The key to note here is it's not a multifocal disease. It's a localized uh, solitary mass in the anterior part of the bladder. And um, what are the standard of care and clinical trial options? Thanks, Silpa. Fantastic overview of the data and uh, very efficient, and you gave us more time for discussion, which is great. Uh, wonderful uh, data set. So um, let's go back to that case. Uh, so let's start. Um, I will ask you, Dr. Gupta. So solitary tumor in the bladder. We don't have the size of the tumor, but let's say it's about, let's say, four centimeters. 
uh, unifocal disease, uh, no hydronephrosis, no lymphadenopathy, maybe, maybe some focal carcinoma in situ. What would you do in that case? Would you go for, in the absence of clinical trials, neoadjuvant chemo followed by surgery, or would you go for blood reservation? Yeah, I think this case highlights the importance of multidisciplinary care. You know, this patient should ideally see a urologist, radiation oncologist, and a medical oncologist, because both the options are very reasonable. Patient is, uh, does not have high-risk disease, and uh, these are the cases that are usually cherry-picked for curative approach with trimodality therapy. Um, but neoadjuvant therapy, chemotherapy followed by cystectomy is also an option. It really depends on what the patient's uh, preferences are and what the multidisciplinary care shows. And you raise a great point because uh, multidisciplinary management of bladder cancer, I think it's really increasing you know, its use, and I think it's important to think about that in a context of a tumor board. Uh, Dr. Sridhar, what about uh, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I would completely agree. I think multidisciplinary care is really, really important in the MIBC setting and even beyond in metastatic disease. Um, in this particular patient, I would absolutely offer cisplatin-based neoadjuvant chemotherapy. I tend to use GEMSYS just because I do, and I think it's the messaging here is use the regimen that you're familiar with, use a regimen that you can do well. Um, so I would give uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy with the hope of getting a complete pathological response because we know that that's linked to an improved overall survival. So that data is pretty solid for me. Um, and then in terms of local treatment options, I think you've got the option of radical cystectomy. The patient looks otherwise well. But indeed, you also have the option of bladder preservation. And we're seeing a change in the demographic of patients who are getting bladder preservation. In the past, they used to be older, frailer, sicker, non-surgical candidates. Now more and more, we're seeing younger, fitter patients asking and opting for bladder preservation. So, you know, this this is why we need a multidisciplinary approach to care. Um, and then beyond the, let's say the patient does get bladder um, preservation, I would then, we have a, an adjuvant trial looking at an immunotherapy in that setting. So we heard about immunotherapy adjuvantly after cystectomy, but I think we also need to bring the bladder sparing population into that, um, you know, into those trials. It's a, it's a great point, and I think, you know, talking about the patients, about all the options up front is key, and I think that's a value of multidisciplinary care. Uh, Dr. Gupta, um, if you were to think about bladder preservation, would you ever do neoadjuvant chemo followed by chemo radiation, or you just go for chemo radiation after maximum TURBT? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, we have the Alliance trial uh, that is ongoing, which offers neoadjuvant cisplatin-based chemotherapy, and if patients have DDR alterations and a complete response, they don't need any further treatment. But if they don't have the alterations and have a response, then they can go chemoradiation to preserve the bladder. But as a standard of care, usually our approach is maximal TURBT followed by chemoradiation. And we we'll do the same thing at the University of Washington. If we go for bladder reservation, maximum TURBD followed by chemo radiation. But uh, Dr. Schroeder, you're, you're doing neoadjuvant chemo, sounds like. Yeah, so, so my standard of care in these patients is always neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Then they go back to the multidisciplinary clinic with the urologist and the, the radiation oncologist, and they kind of duke it out. They decide what's the best option for the patient. Is it surgery? Is it radiation? Or is it either are reasonable. But I tend to use neoadjuvant chemotherapy standard across the board, uh, regardless of if they're going for bladder sparing. And most people do end up getting through the bladder sparing. We give concurrent cisplatin. Sometimes they may miss a week or two of the concurrent treatment, but mostly my radiation oncologists don't have a big problem with that because they've received neoadjuvant chemotherapy already. 
And that's some variability in practice because we don't have high level of evidence guiding us there. There have been, has been at least one, maybe two trials looking at that question many years ago of nevajvan chemo before chemo radiation. There was no significant benefit, but I think the, the era now has changed and I think maybe a new trial may be recommended. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I think we have to be very cautious with the quality of the evidence from those original trials that didn't necessarily show a benefit for neoadjuvant. I think there were some caveats that we need to think about. Absolutely. And, and the, just to clarify for the audience, we're discussing about the role of neoadjuvant chemo before chemo radiation. This is questionable. However, level one evidence exists for neoadjuvant cisplatin based combination chemotherapy before radical cystectomy. And we always offer that in patients who are fit enough to receive cisplatin. If they're not fit enough for cisplatin, then we, we uh, uh, go right to surgery or bladder preservation. Uh, or uh, clinical trials. Uh, maybe very quickly before we go to the next session, very quickly, uh, in your daily practice, Dr. Gupta and Dr. Sridhar, what's the proportion of patients who do go for blood preservation uh, versus radical surgery after new adjuvant chemo? Uh, oh, um, so sorry, I'll go mm -hmm. first. So I think, you know, if we look at a patient population, they've had neoadjuvant chemotherapy and they're equally eligible to receive either bladder sparing or radical cystectomy, I'm probably sitting at around 60-40, 60% getting cystectomy, about 40% trying for bladder sparing. That's, Interesting. Uh, Dr. Gupta? Uh, you know, in our uh, institution, we are uh, still doing majority surgery, and those patients who uh, don't have the surgical option, they're getting uh, bladder preservation. So I would say around 90% undergo cystectomy and 10% undergo radiation. And for the audience, there are two options for neoadjuvant chemotherapy for patients who go for radical cystectomy, left dissection, either dose-dense EMVAC with growth factor support, or as Dr. Schrieder mentioned, gemcerapine and cisplatin. We do a 21-day cycle with cisplatin, gemcerapine on day one and gemcerapine on day eight. There has been a phase three trial called VESPER, phase three trial presented at ESMO in September of 2021, showed a possible benefit with those dense MVAC. However, there was a difference in the number of cycles, six cycles MVAC versus four cycles GMCs. I think the point is, if someone is fit for cisplatin, offer them. I would do four cycles of cisplatin-based neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Those who are not fit for cisplatin, I do not use carboplatin, and I think neither of you use, right, in the yeah, neoadjuvant. I would agree. Yeah, so no carbo for neoadjuvant setting. I will go, I will move on to the metastatic disease setting and I uh, will present another case for you. Uh, another patient with hematuria, uh, workup uh, showed urothelial carcinoma of the bladder. A CAT scan showed significant lymphadenopathy both in the pelvis and retroperitoneal lymphadenopathy. And retroperitoneal lymphadenopathy is metastatic disease, is M1 for bladder cancer. So this patient has poor kidney function with creatinine clearance below 30 ml per minute, ECOPS of 2, so compromised performance status. Actively smoking has other comorbidities, hypertension, diabetes, and mild anemia, but no autoimmune disease. And the tumor tissue assessment showed the PDL1 low with CPS less than, uh, less than 10. So CPS1, a low, low CPS score. Uh, and uh, the provider sent next generation sequencing of the tumor tissue to evaluate for uh, alterations. So keep that case in mind. And in the, in the moment, we're uh, thrilled to introduce Dr. Schrieder. Uh, Dr. Schrieder is a medical oncologist and urinary cancer site lead in Princess Margaret Cancer Center. Uh, she's a professor in the Department of Medicine, University of Toronto. And she's the chair of the GU Medical Oncologist uh, of Canada. Uh, so many roles, many hats, and many contributions in the field. Dr. Schrieder. 
So thank you, Petros, and thank you, Shilpa, for a great talk to start off the evening. So this is actually a slide um, from Shilpa, but it really shows very beautifully the treatment landscape in locally advanced metastatic urothelial carcinoma. And you'll notice that at the beginning in the 70s and 80s, we had cisplatin and we had MVAC, and then we had a long period where there wasn't a whole lot going on. Um, in, uh, you know, around 20, sorry, 2005 to 2010, we saw vinflunin coming into play. And then around 2016 to 2017, we saw a number of the immune checkpoint inhibitors enter the field. And there's been a lot of excitement about the immune checkpoint inhibitors, but I think the most important reason um, that the immune checkpoint inhibitors have had such a big benefit in this disease is because it showed that as a field we can do trials and we can take those trials to completion and get FDA approval. Um, and I think that really opened the door for people and industry and everybody to say, wow, we have room to move in bladder cancer. And so that then led to a number of other trials um, uh, evaluating drugs like infortimab vidotin, which is an antibody drug conjugate, or defitinib, which targets the FGFR23 alterations. Um, and we're seeing other antibody drug conjugates like sesetuzumab, govitaken. And then, of course, we're seeing these drugs being used in different settings, such as the avalimab um, use in the maintenance setting, which I'll talk more about in a little bit. We know that both atezolizumab and dervalimab were withdrawn for the second-line indication in the United States. And then we also know that pembrolizumab and atezolizumab were reviewed by the FDA ODAC for first-line indication um, in cis-ineligible um, metastatic urothelial carcinoma. And pembrolizumab label was changed um, for only platinum-ineligible metastatic urothelial carcinoma. And I think it's important to keep in mind that the response rates that we've seen with the immune checkpoint inhibitors are only in the range of about 20 to 28%. And if you keep in the back of your mind, GEMSYS is about 45 to 60%. Gemcarbo is about 35%. You can see that the immune checkpoint inhibitors, the response rates are a little bit lower. And so I think it's really important that we don't very quickly substitute um, chemotherapy for the immune checkpoint inhibitors because you might compromise response rates. All right. So if you have a patient in the first-line setting, how do you evaluate this patient and what groups do they fall into? So we have patients who are considered cisplatin eligible. The Galski criteria would suggest that you need a creatinine clearance of 60 and above. But if you think of this patient population, 72 comorbidities, many patients will not meet that criteria. Um, so I think many of us in our practice, we actually tolerate a creatinine clearance down to 50. So I know in my practice, I will give cisplatin down to a creatinine clearance of 50, and sometimes I'll split the dose of cisplatin over day one and day eight to, to, to help make that happen. Um, and then, you know, currently we know that we do chemotherapy up front, followed by avalimab maintenance. That's a category one recommendation. Um, alternatively, you could do dose-dense MVAC with growth factor support, again, followed by avalimab maintenance. And then you've got the cisplatin ineligible population, which is sort of the group in my practice that I say is less than a creatinine clearance of about, you know, 50, 45. I'm getting uncomfortable giving cisplatin, and I prefer to give something like gemcitabine and carboplatin. And the category one recommendation is gemcarbo, followed by avalimab maintenance. And then you have the group that's considered platinum ineligible. Um, and this is a really small 
population in my practice. There's not many patients who fall into that category. If their creatinine clearance is compromised, I'll make sure I have my urologist involved, get a nephrologist involved. They might need um, a nephrostomy tube. So I really try to optimize their renal function so that I can get the platinum-based chemotherapy in first. But in those who you can't, uh, things like atezolizumab and pembrolizumab could be a consideration. Um, so just a couple notes there. We know that cisplatin eligibility criteria are changing, as I mentioned. And this year, actually, Dr. Gupta presented on platinum um, eligibility. So really trying to define that space a little bit better. All right. <clears throat> so in the second-line setting, so patients who progress on frontline platinum-based chemotherapy, we all currently use uh, pembrolizumab based on the Keynote 045 study that was shown here. And this is one of the most important studies, I think, for our field. Um, but on the basis of this study, pembrolizumab has been used in the second-line setting. So that's where we were. We had platinum frontline. We had pembrolizumab in the second-line setting. So we like to combine things in oncology. So what if we, you know, look at putting the chemotherapy and the immunotherapy together? Um, and so these studies looked at combining chemo and immunotherapy, the Keynote 361 study, the Checkmate 901 study, and the Invigor 130. And there were also combinations of IO-IO as well as IO plus ADC, um, Danube, Checkmate 901, as well as EV302. And I'll go into a little bit more detail in a moment. So these are the combination studies, um, really looking at a Tezo, platinum-based chemo plus atezo or platinum-based chemotherapy alone. And the Keynote 361 study had a very similar trial design, Pembro, Pembro plus platinum-based chemotherapy or platinum-based chemotherapy. Both of these studies, unfortunately, were negative studies. Um, you can see the uh, PFS hazard ratio 0.82, overall survival hazard ratio 0.83. Um, so, you know, it's important to think through this carefully, right? So putting things together does not always make things better. It's also important to note that in the combination arms, patients were actually having, um, in a sense, they were allowed to continue with the pembrolizumab. So you had a bit of a maintenance component there. And despite that, you didn't see a benefit for this com combined approach. In fact, the monotherapy arms were halted by the FDA after the pd one low group had actually decreased survival. Um, so then we also saw the Danube study, and this looked at Dervalimab, Dervalimab plus Tremolimumab versus platinum-based chemotherapy. Again, this was deemed to be a negative study, um, and this, again, was disappointing. We were hoping that we didn't have to use chemotherapy. I think chemotherapy remains important in this setting. Um, and then finally, we heard about the Checkmate 901 study, um, which did not meet the primary endpoint for overall survival in patients whose tumor cells um, express PDL1 greater than or equal to 1% um, at final analysis. So again, we're getting the story that chemotherapy in the frontline setting is really quite important. So despite the successes in other tumor types with the chemoimmunotherapy approach, phase three trials of immune checkpoint inhibitors in combination with first-line chemo in advanced UC have not shown significant improvements in overall survival. So what about a sequencing approach? So we've seen two studies really exploring this question, the Javelin Bladder 100 study, which I'll talk to you about um, more in a second, and the Hoosier study that looked at PEMBRO in the maintenance setting. Um, here's the Javelin Bladder 100 switched maintenance study design, really patients who had um, not had disease progression on frontline 
platinum-based chemotherapy were randomized to receive avalumab every two weeks or best supportive care. Um, and based on this study, avalumab was approved in the switch maintenance setting. We saw an improvement in overall survival with the use of maintenance avalumab. This is a really important study, I think. Overall survival and PFS benefits were seen regardless of pd one status, regardless of whether they had GEMSYS or GEMCARBO, regardless of the number of cycles, and regardless of response to chemotherapy and the duration of the treatment-free interval. So it was, excuse me, it was between four and 10 weeks. In that period of time, it didn't matter if they started at four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, um, they would still benefit from the use of maintenance. And, and this, these results have held up um, on long-term follow-up analyses that were actually presented here as well. Um, and so, you know, some of the challenges that remain really are what's the ideal biomarker? Is there a subset of patients that we expect are going to respond better? You know, we've looked at some of the usual things, the usual suspects like PDL1. It doesn't completely predict who's going to gain benefit. Um, other biomarkers look interesting, such as TMBN. I know Shilpa has done some work in this area as well, and looking at gene expression signatures. But for now, in any patient that I have that's had platinum-based chemotherapy up front and has not experienced disease progression, my standard of care is avalumab uh, maintenance therapy. So what about patients who do not have response upfront to platinum-based, who don't have disease response upfront to platinum-based chemotherapy? Um, and what about patients who have disease progression on avalumab? So, you know, there's been a lot of interest and excitement in getting a platinum-free regimen. First-line platinum-based chemotherapy is, of course, the preferred option for eligible patients. Switch maintenance probably enables more patients to receive an immune checkpoint inhibitor as part of first-line therapy. Because we know this is an aggressive disease, so sometimes what happens is the disease will progress so quickly that you won't get time to get the immune checkpoint inhibitor in to the second line setting. Um, and there's a significant attrition and lack of reliable biomarker for progression. Um, so what options are available for patients who are platinum ineligible? Um, we could look at monotherapy, uh, such as atezolizumab or pembrolizumab. And there's a role of some future combinations like IO plus PARP inhibitors, IO plus antibody drug conjugates, and IO plus FGFR inhibitor. So this is a phase two BIU study that took dervalumab, a pd one inhibitor, plus olaparib, um, which is a PARP inhibitor. And the primary endpoint here was progression-free survival. Secondary endpoints you can see there. So the PFS results suggest that there's a potential role for PARP inhibitors inhibitors in the treatment of patients with uh, um, HRR, mutated metastatic urothelial carcinoma, but I think this space is still in evolution, by no means standard of care. This is another interesting study looking at infortumab, vedotin, the antibody drug conjugate, plus pembrolizumab. Um, this study showed an objective response rate of about 73%, which is now, if you remember, GEMSYS is in the 45 to 60% range. I think this is the first combination that's perhaps challenging that frontline uh, GEMSYS uh, indication. Median progression-free survival, 12.3 months. Median overall survival was not reached. Um, most common treatment emergent adverse events were fatigue, alopecia, peripheral sensory neuropathy, the phase three EV302 study is underway. It's comparing EV plus Pembro to chemotherapy with the addition of the avalumab maintenance arm, because that's our new standard of care. 
Um, and then this was a study presented by Dr. Powell's at ESMO comparing uh, or looking at urdafitinib, which is an FGFR inhibitor, plus citrilamab, which is another immune checkpoint inhibitor. So in the one arm, patients had the urdafitinib plus citrilamab, and in the other arm, it was just urdafitinib alone. Um, and if you just look across the top at the objective response rates, about 33% for urdafitinib alone, and you get a sense of 68% with the combination. So maybe there's something going, going on there by way of synergy. So I think, as Petros alluded to at the beginning, it's really, really critical to move the field forward, to keep getting, you know, enrolling patients onto clinical trials. And uh, Beacon is an excellent website. It really helps to bring trials to patients. And I think it's really important to empower our patients to ask about trials. And if there's no trials at the center where they are, to, to really ask for referrals to centers where there are trials ongoing, because that's what's going to help us to move the field forward. Um, and this particular tool allows patients to search by geographic area and find trials that are close for them, um, which I think is really important. So Really, in conclusion overall, I think it's a very, very exciting time in the field with several new drugs with differing mechanisms of action. I think outcomes are definitely improving. I'm seeing patients in my clinic who are now three years out with metastatic disease, which is virtually unheard of. Um, with more treatment options available, both sequencing studies and a better understanding of biomarkers will become increasingly important. Um, and, and as I said already, I think clinical trials are really the key to moving the field forward. So this is a patient who presented with hematuria due to a bladder mass, urine cytology, and uh, TRBT confirmed urethelial carcinoma. CT of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis showed several retroperitoneal and pelvic lymph nodes. Creatinine clearance was 28 mils per minute, so pretty low. ECOP performance status was 2. Um, uh, the patient's a current smoker, had type 2 diabetes, hypertension, mild anemia. This is quite characteristic of many of the patients that we see. Um, no autoimmune disease, not on any steroids. PDL1 was low, um, and tumor NGS testing was sent. So maybe, Petros, do you want to comment on what you think about this case? Sure. Thank you, Kala. Uh, fantastic discussion and an overview of the data. So the, the patient that we discussed here, uh, it's interesting because has a, a few factors that are relevant decision-making. The performance status of ECOG2, it's concerning to me in, in combination with creatinine clearance below 30. And in those cases with a borderline creatinine clearance, I may send a 24-hour urine creatinine just to have a better estimation of the creatinine clearance. And as you said before, Kala, can we do something to optimize the kidney function? But if I have a patient with ECOG-PS2 and GFR cartilage below 30, I go back to the criteria that Dr. Gupta help, is helping us develop, the criteria for platinum-ineligible population. And I will uh, focus your attention to the poster that uh, we have at this meeting. Dr. Gupta is leading, defining this consensus-based criteria. One of these criteria is ECOG-PS2 and cartilage below 30. And those patients may have a little bit hard time with platinum chemotherapy. As Dr. Schwider mentioned, this is probably a very small population, about 10% in, my, in our clinical practice. And for these patients, I may go for a checkpoint inhibitor monotherapy, Pembro or Atizo, uh, regardless of PDL1 low score. I would definitely uh, send tumor generation, not generation sequencing to look for targets, and I will also look for clinical trials in those patients. So clinical trial, checkpoint inhibitor monotherapy of trial, send next generation sequencing. Silpa, what would you do? Petros, as you discussed, this patient um, might be the one of the few patients who are truly platinum ineligible, giving, given ECOG performance status to creatinine clearance less than 30, and um, 
we could consider single-agent pembrolizumab or atezolizumab for this patient. And uh, let's say if we switch it up, let's say this patient has a creatinine clearance of 40, and uh, otherwise, you know, moving around, you know, he, he tries to go for a response, would you do something differently? Then I would do gemcitabine carboplatin, as we showed in our consensus uh, uh, based on the survey, creatinine clearance less than 30, and or ECOG performance status 3 or higher. Uh, if the performance status is 2 and creatinine clearance more than 30, then the patient can get carboplatin-based chemotherapy followed by Valumab maintenance. I would do the same thing. Carla, what do you think? Yeah, I completely agree. So that's, you know, it, the criteria become important and hopefully we can have a publication in the future to help our colleagues uh, define that. Um, let me ask you this question. So, Carla, uh, you mentioned the data with Javelin Bladder 100, level 1 evidence, significant overall survival benefit, despite that the significant proportion of patients in the best supported care alone arm got subsequent therapy, which is 72%, which is the highest proportion I have seen in, in literature, uh, strengthening the results of the study. Uh, if the patient asks you, should I get Avelumab every two weeks uh, indefinitely or until progression of toxicity, or uh, what would you say? Would you stick with that? Or the question here, someone is asking, what about pembrolizumab as a substitute every six weeks? Yeah, I mean, I, I think currently I would go with the Avelumab maintenance, right? So I don't think I would wait because the chance is you're going to lose the window. There's a potential you'll lose the window. So, you know, because we know they can start anywhere between the four, within the four to 10 week window, if they need a break after chemotherapy, I might say, okay, take two months off, come back, and then we'll get started on the Avelumab. I tend to prefer to do that than to wait to, for them to have disease progression and then consider Pembro in that second line I agree with you, Kyle, 100%. Uh, Silpa, would you ever substitute Pembro for Avelumab as maintenance therapy, or you would stick with Avelumab as level 1 evidence? Based on the level 1 evidence, we would do Avelumab, but, you know, many times some patients really can't travel and they can't afford to travel, and in that case, I think, you know, following the real-world uh, problems, one could use Pembrolizumab, although not recommended, but if you look at the pembrolizumab data in this setting, the phase two trial showed um, efficacy, although it was not a registrational trial. And Dr. Guba is referring to data by Dr. Galski. It was about 107 patients randomized phase two trial from the Hoosier Cancer Research Network. Pembrolizumab versus placebo with a crossover design in the switch maintenance setting. This trial showed PFS benefit, but no overall survival benefit with switch maintenance Pembro. Uh, so uh, the data overall support Avelumab because of the overall survival benefit in the Javelin Bladder 100 trial, which was a phase three trial with about 700 patients. Uh, and uh, the other question that usually you know, people ask was about quality of life, mm -hmm. which is important endpoint. Mm -hmm. And we just had a publication literally four days ago looking at the patient report outcomes in patients who received Avelumab versus best supportive care alone in the context of the Javelin Bladder 100 trial. This was published in the European Urology, and it was actually very um, uh, comforting to see that the quality of life of those patients on Avelumab remains pretty good, and uh, the Avelumab switch maintenance does not compromise the quality of life. So the overall survival benefit comes at a very low cost with minimal impact of quality of life, which I think is important in point for the patients, and patient advocates talk about it. Um, I think we have a very quick time for another question uh, before we move on to the next time of the talk. So um, uh, I will ask you um, the question that is actually being asked here. Going back to the new adjuvant setting and adjuvant setting, uh, uh, Silpa and Kala, I will start with Silpa first. What proportion of patients who are eligible for chemotherapy for cisplatin do not get it? 
you know, for whatever reason, especially in the community practice, any estimation and how does this impact your subsequent decision making? Yeah, you know, in the data that you've generated, Petros, along with uh, Dr. Agarwal, Dr. Goswami and colleagues, the real-world utilization of frontline therapy is really low, and more recently we presented work with our paradigm study at ASCO-GU and ASCO-HERE that when we surveyed around 150 uh, oncologists, uh, we found that the uptake has improved over the last few years. However, it is still less than 50% in frontline setting and um, hardly about 30 to 40% patients get second-line therapy. So it is uh, really not uh, utilizing our maximal available options, and we need to do better in that setting. I totally agree, and I think that applies to both perioperative setting and metastatic setting. Kala, any comments? <clears throat> yeah, for sure. So in the perioperative setting, um, there's been a long-standing underuse of neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Uh, we did surveys across Canada, surveys across the U.S. The numbers are low, but there's differences between academic and non-academic centers. That's, a, that's one major difference. The other really important difference is in places where there's a multidisciplinary approach to care, where there's people working together, rates of neoadjuvant chemotherapy use are significantly higher than in settings where people are working in a very isolated manner. So I think as a field, we really need to put effort into multidisciplinary care, offering multidisciplinary care. We actually did a publication looking at multidisciplinary approach to care, and I'm very specific saying approach because you don't necessarily need to have a clinic, right, because there's resources to staff that's, that's all needed, but you need people to be talking, whether that's in a rounds, whether that's a corridor consult, whatever you want to say, but you need the medical oncologist, radiation oncologist, and urologist having discussions. Um, and now we're also seeing people like onconephrologists who can help to optimize the renal function, and I think that's also going to be important going forward. I totally agree with both of you, and I think, again, the concept and importance of multidisciplinary care comes along. And uh, to your point, uh, uh, Carla, we're, we're having this clinics at the University of Washington, it's just a pleasant experience mm -hmm. to have all the players in the same room. And Silva, to your point, in metastatic disease setting, many patients do not have access to therapy. And that's a global issue that we have to eliminate disparities and make sure that the life-prolonging therapies are available to patients. So I'm going to move along here in the interest of time to uh, further lines of therapy in metastatic disease. And I will start with a case, 69-year-old gentleman with symptomatic progression with fatigue and back pain after four cycles of carboplatin cemcitabine. I want to make a comment here that about one out of five patients, 20%, have primary progression to carbogem. Majority of patients have the response to stable disease, but this patient is in this 20% of patients. So a CAT scan showed liver and bone metastasis with portent poor prognosis. Liver metastasis and bone meds, usually these patients are not doing well. And ECOPS is preserved for now, it's one. The next generation sequencing of blooded humor showed that a, a mutation, activating mutation in FGFR3, let's keep that in mind, uh, and this patient has no other relevant comorbidities in terms of eye, skin, nail, or GI issues, no autoimmune disease, however, has some mild anemia, a little bit low albumin, and diabetes mellitus with a high hemoglobin A1C, more than 9%, and grade 1 neuropathy because of diabetes and also obesity. So let's keep that in mind. 
So what options we have in the second line setting? Let's say a patient has progression on pattern-based chemotherapy. Of as Dr. Schwitter mentioned before, we have data with a checkpoint inhibitor. Pembrolizumab has level one evidence in platinum refractory immunotherapy naive setting based on the Keynote 045 trial published by Dr. Bellman and colleagues about five years ago. So the overall survival benefit versus taxane in the US or Vinflin in Europe, in patients again, platinum refractory immunotherapy naive, and it's a checkpoint inhibitor of choice in patients who have platinum progression of platinum-based chemotherapy if you are about to give checkpoint inhibition. Of course, there are other options we'll talk about in a little bit. Nivolumab and Avelumab are also approved in the platinum refractory setting based on phase two trials, but Pembro has level one evidence in platinum refractory disease immunotherapy naive setting for patients who did not receive Avelumab as maintenance therapy, which has also level one evidence, as we discussed before, for patients with response-stable disease to chemotherapy. FGFR3 mutations specifically are commonly observed across stages of bladder cancer, and I think that's interesting because we live in the year of precision oncology, and over the last few years, we have characterized molecularly the biomarkers and targets in bladder cancer, and FGFR3 comes as a relevant biomarker and therapeutic target, and as you see here, it's much higher frequency of FGFR3-activating mutations, especially with low-grade non-muscle invasive disease. But even with high-grade and more aggressive disease, I would say about 15 to 20% of patients with metastatic bladder cancer have FGFR3 alterations, and in upper tract disease, it's even higher, so between 40 and 50%. Maybe about half of your patients with upper tract disease, renal pelvis or ureter, may have an FGFR3 mutation, so it's important to check out a new next-generation sequencing on an RT-PCR test to look for these alterations in metastatic disease. There is a plethora of agents, uh, FGFR inhibitors have been tested in this disease, uh, especially metastatic disease. And as you see here, erdafitinib, the lower um, uh, row in this uh, 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 plot there, uh, has a high response rate approaching 40% in patients uh, with those alterations. And specifically, it will show you results of the BLC2001 phase two single arm trial with erdafitinib that led to the FDA approval, accelerated approval, not regular approval yet, for uh, erdafitinib for patients with FGFR2 or FGFR3 activating mutation or fusion. And it's important that this not applying amplifications, it's only for activating mutations or fusion rearrangements in FGFR2 or FGFR3. And the study, as I mentioned, BLC2001, single arm study with erdafitinib at eight milligrams once a day. This was not randomized trial. So the, again, the evidence is not level one. It approval is accelerated. And these patients had platinum refractory disease, as you see, in the eligibility criteria, metastatic platinum refractory urothelial cancer, uh, and these patients may have received prior checkpoint inhibitor, and they got uh, enrolled in the study, single-agent erdafitinib FGFR inhibitor, with primary endpoint being overall response rate and other secondary endpoints. In this swimmer's plot, you see that many patients may achieve response early on, and this also may be accompanied with symptomatic palliative benefit. And you see that the response rate was 40%. Most of them were partial responses with erdafitinib single agent. These patients were selected, again, for FGFR2 or 3 mutations or fusions. And the median duration of response was about six months. Uh, about a third of the patients had a response that lasted more than a year. 
And there was, as you see, some of those responses were durable, long-lasting, and these responses happen regardless of what exactly alteration type, mutation or fusion happened. Of course, mutations are more common than fusions. Tumor location, upper or lower tract, origin of the tumor. Again, we talk about metastatic urothelial cancer here. Presence of visceral metastasis or not, and prior treatment with checkpoint inhibitors. So immunotherapy-naive patients and immunotherapy-treated patients may have a response to erdafitinib. And because this was a single-arm study, the approval was accelerated by the FDA for platinum refractory disease. So adafitinib is an option for patients in the second-line setting for those with platinum refractory disease. The question is, what do you give first? Do you give adafitinib or do you give pembrolizumab in this second-line setting, right, in platinum refractory disease? And that question will be answered by the third trial, phase three trial, randomized patients to either ERDA or pembro if they have already received uh, uh, platinum-based chemotherapy and they're immunotherapy-naive. Though those who, are, uh, who already received immunotherapy, they get randomized to ERDA versus taxane of influence. So that trial is ongoing. We have not seen data yet, two separate cohorts, and the patients are being screened centrally, if I remember correctly, uh, for FGFR 2 or 3 mutation or fusion. And I think it's important when it comes to metastatic urothelial cancer, to discuss that it's important to test those patients, the tumor tissue, using next-generation sequencing that you can, you can get a lot of answers for biomarker therapeutic targets. Uh, and that's what I do in my clinical practice, and I know Silpa and Kala are doing the same thing. If you don't test your tumor tissue for alter genomic alterations, you don't know the molecular profile that can be relevant to treatment, and especially for erdafitinib or for clinical trials. So it's important to test those patients, and I think there is also this concept of underutilization we discussed before of new adjuvant study-based chemotherapy. There is also underutilization of molecular testing in this disease. So it's important uh, in my practice when I have a patient with metastatic urothelial cancer, I send tumor tissue uh, for next-generation sequencing. Erdafitinib has a companion diagnostic. It's called RT-PCR assay uh, and by Kiagen, and that test uh, can give you an answer about the FGFR biomarker. But if you use a more comprehensive approach, you may get also other answers. When you do the next generation sequencing, it's important to know what the, are the genes that are being tested for and what are specific alterations that are being tested for. Because sometimes, if you don't test for a particular gene, you may not know the answer. So redefine print what are the tests being tested, uh, what are the genes being tested, and what are the alterations being tested in the NCS in those patients. And both urologists and medical oncologists have important roles in educating patients about genomic testing and how this can give us options, either erdafitinib or clinical trials for metastatic urothelial cancer. And this is now transitions to the antibody drug conjugates. And that's a class of agent that is transforming actively the field of oncology in general. We saw the plenary session at ASCO data from Trasuzumab Deruxtec, and if I remember correctly, uh, in breast cancer with impressive data. And also in urothelial cancer, we have seen significant improvements. So far, we have two antibody drug conjugates that are approved by the FDA, and Fortmovedotin has full regulatory approval, regular approval, and Sachituzumab Govitikan has accelerated approval. Nectin-4 is the target of Enfortumab-Edotin, that is, uh, this antibody drug conjugate 
links Nectin-4 and antibody against Nectin-4 to a toxin called MMAE, a macrotubule inhibitor. And that antibody, this is a very strong link here, tries to pretty much package this molecule and send it towards the Nectin-4-expressing urothelial cancer cells. On the contrary, Shotsuzon-Govitikan has a different target. TROP2 is a, a, another protein expressing urothelial cancer cells, and the hydrolyzable link here is linking that antibody to SN38. This is a metapolatoferinotecan, a toposomerase 1 inhibitor. So different structures, different molecules, different, uh, um, I would say, properties of this antibody drug conjugates, and in my opinion, both of them have an important role in advanced urothelial cancer. What are the data supporting the use of these antibody drug conjugates? Let's start with the phase two trial data first. And Fort Mavedotin, antibody drug conjugate against Nectin 4. The EV201 phase two trial had two cohorts. Cohort one evaluated uh, and Fort Mavedotin as single agent monotherapy in patients who had prior progression on platinum based chemo and checkpoint inhibitors. So, third line and beyond. And as you see, a very impressive response rate of 44%. And in the, uh, you see in the left part of the, of the slide, and 12% complete response rate. Think about third line space, right? But we didn't have good options until recently. Impressive complete response rate, 12%. In the waterfall plot on the right side, you see that 84% of the patients had reduction in the tumor size. So important data, uh, high activity of this agent that led to the accelerated approval of enfortimavidotin in December 2019 for patients with prior treatment with platinum-based chemotherapy and second hip. So third-line setting at that time. Cohort 2 answered a different question. If patients were not eligible for cisplatin, cisplatin-ineligible patients, in the first line, they may have received atezolizumab or pembrolizumab checkpoint inhibitor that were utilized or were approved in 2017 for those patients. And in second line, if they were not fit for cisplatin, they're platinum naive, they got enfortumab, single agent, monotherapy, again, not randomized trial, single arm. And the question was, what was the response rate with enfortumab second line post-checkpoint inhibitor. And when you see the waterfall plot on the left, about 9 out of 10 patients had reduction in the tumor size. So shrinkage of the tumor, significant or, or, or not significant, but some reduction in the tumor size, very impressive data. And the swimmer's plot on the right, you see that most responses happen early at the time of the first scan, this small rent around circles. And some of those responses were durable, long-lasting. So definitely very impressive data with antibody drug conjugate. And you see here that in, in this cohort too, again, second line EV, post-checkpoint inhibitor, response rate 52%. You can argue it's a single-arm trial, not randomized, 89 patients, but impressive response rate, more than 50%, and 20% complete response rate. So definitely uh, and a very active agent uh, in the second-line space, post-checkpoint inhibitor. And that led to the approval of Enfortumabedot. And before I tell you the full label, I will go through the phase three trial data. This phase three trial is coming to confirm the cohort one of the phase two trial. So this Enfortumabedot monotherapy, given at 1.25 mg per kg, uh, given over half an hour on days one, 8.15. So three out of four weeks on a 20-day cycle. And this was compared with the taxane, docetaxel or paclitaxel in the U.S., or Vinflin in the European Union, and this was a phase three trial in patients who had progression on prior platinum-based chemotherapy and sequent inhibitors, so third line and beyond, and primary endpoint was overall survival. 
And you see that in fortumavidotin uh, demonstrated significant overall survival benefit. Uh, hazard ratio was 0.70 with significant improvement. Median overall survival was about 13 months versus 9 months with chemotherapy. You see the blue line and the uh, orange line there uh, being apart. And obviously, this led to the uh, FDA approval, the full approval of enfortumavidotin in the third line space after chemotherapy and second inhibitor. At the same time, because of the previous data of cohort 2 of the phase 2 trial, there was also approval in the second line space for patients who were not fit for cisplatin and they received first line therapy. So if someone got carbogem and had progression on disease, couldn't get available maintenance, could go second line and unfortunately is an option there. Uh, the EV301 showed overall survival benefit, PFS benefit, and the response rate of 41%. So you see consistency in the overall response rate between the phase one, phase two, and phase three trials with this antibody drug conjugate. It's interesting to note that uh, we had update from Dr. Ronsenberg at ASCO uh, this meeting uh, here in 2022, and the data with longer follow-up look very similar. So the overall survival benefit is retained with longer follow-up, and the numbers look very, very similar. Hazard ratio is about the same, and the median is about the same. Uh, so definitely an important option here for patients in the third-line space. And for some patients, cisplatin eligible is an option for second-line space. Adverse events of interest, uh, we're going to talk about it in a little bit, but I want you to think about fatigue, anorexia, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and also peripheral neuropathy. It's an issue with those patients. We have to be cautious how you use it. And skin rash happens about half of the patients. Uh, it's usually mild to moderate, and usually topical steroids can help, but a small proportion of patients rarely can get Steven Johnson, so something to keep in mind. And uh, also hyperglycemia can happen in, in about 10% of patients, so keep an eye on that. Another antibody drug conjugate of interest is uh, the substitution of Govitecan, as I mentioned, against TROP2. Uh, this has been tested in phase two trials so far, uh, and this is the uh, TROPHY01, has cohort one in the third can be online space uh, after checkpoint inhibitor and after chemotherapy. And uh, that cohort one led to the FDA approval, accelerated approval of these antibody drug conjugates in patients uh, after plantum platinum-based chemotherapy and checkpoint inhibition. And the data is shown here, overall response rate 27%. Uh, waterfall plot, about eight out of 10 patients had some reduction in the tumor size. Uh, most responses were partial, but about 5% had complete response. In swimmer's plot, you see that uh, some of those responses are durable. Median duration of response was about seven months, median PFS 5.4 months, and median OS about 11 months. Again, single arm, ornithomized study, but definitely added such tuzumacovitican as an option in patients in the third line or fourth line space. Uh, the bone marrow suppression is one of the side effects, the leukopenia and neutropenia, uh, about 10% febrile neutropenia, growth factor support, and those reductions can help get us through, uh, and diarrhea is another, uh, about Six out of ten patients get diarrhea, usually grade one, grade two. Happens about the, you know, around the days of the drug dosing, and about 10% is grade three. But anti-diarrhea medications, hydration education can help us get through the diarrhea in those patients. So two antibody drug conjugates approved in that setting, and Fortumab has uh, full approval. Such as Govitecan has uh, accelerated approval. And there is a, f a phase three trial I will show you in a second. But what about combining uh, antibody drug conjugates with checkpoint inhibition? Dr. Schroeder showed the data with Pembroplus EV. We also uh, present the data. I had this chance to present the data at ASCO-GU a few months ago. 
PEMBRO plus SG. This combination was promising with an objective response rate of 34% in a difficult to treat population, second line setting with platinum refractory disease, and the disease control rate was about 61%. So I would say that data merit further investigation are not practice changing, but I think the combination of SG plus pembrolizumab needs to be further investigated. Two-thirds of the patients had reduction in the tumor size. In the phase three trial called Tropic-04, this is comparing Sacitusma Covitic and single-agent monotherapy to either taxane or vinflunin, and this is the third-line space or later, so patients may have received and formavidotin is allowed, uh, and these patients are being randomized to single agent such as Zumabovitikan or Taxane or Chemo. The trial is ongoing and hopefully will finish accrual in the near future. We uh, talked about the importance of uh, HER2, and HER2 is actually variably expressed in urothelial cancer, and it's actually interesting because uh, this agent, TDXD, we saw data in breast cancer earlier today, has activity in urothelial cancer. Dr. Galski saw data uh, at ASCO-GU, and there was, I think, a response rate of 36% with a combination of TDXD plus nivolumab. So this data, again, are uh, in the phase one to trial early on. It's not practice changing, but definitely keep an eye, I think, anti-HER2 antibody drug conjugates, in my opinion, is probably the next big thing in this disease. We saw data in posters in this meeting by Dr. Sheng from China, who actually presented data with a HER2 ADC RC48, the satamat vedotin, and now uh, this uh, very active agent, about 50% response rates, uh, and I think the, the DTXD and the RC48, the satamat vedotin, both of them are going to be tested further in phase two and phase three trials. So keep an eye for anti-HER2 antibody drug conjugates in the future. This is the data from Dr. Galski, waterfall plot, so some interesting responses there. Uh, again, as I mentioned, early, early days, not practice changing, but definitely in your radar, either single agent or combination with immunotherapy. So going back to the case here, uh, again, a uh, 69-year-old gentleman, uh, progression or carbogem, uh, CT showed liver and bone meds, ECOPS1, activating mutation in FGFR3, uh, no autoimmune disease, but high hemoglobin A1C, so the uncontrolled diabetes. Grade 1 neuropathy uh, from diabetes and obesity. Silva, what would you do in that second-line space in platinum refractory case? So there is... Uh you know, a lot of options for this patient because the patient also has uh, alterations in the tumor, in the FGFR. So we really have to choose what is best right now. Uh, now, now it appears patient's diabetes is not well controlled, glycosylated hemoglobin of 9.2%, uh, has some baseline grade 1 neuropathy. So I would use FGFR inhibitor adafitinib first, try to get diabetes under control because within 40 mavidontin there can be issues with diabetic ketoacidosis, and we don't want the side effects to make quality of life worse. But at any point, you know, this patient should be offered different therapies in the journey uh, uh, dealing with bladder cancer. It makes sense to use what uh, we can use based on the other comorbidities first. And that's the main question. How do we sequence those agents? As Dr. Gupta says, we now have options we didn't have before, which is great. Kala, what would you do? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think that, uh, you know, when I think about this patient, uh, I'm worried about the patient for a few reasons, liver mets, but in addition to bo uh, bone mets as well. I mean, 
we showed this year that patients with bone mets may actually have worse outcomes. And we've not really called out bone mets previously, but I think it's something that we need to think about. It's a high source of morbidity and mortality, I think. Um, I like to try to get as many options into the patients as possible. Um, if they've had carbogem and progressed, you know, you might think about an immunotherapy like pembrolizumab with a quick thought to switch to an FGFR inhibitor. Of course, there's a lot of controversy and debate right now whether patients who have FGFR 2-3 alterations are more or less sensitive to the immune checkpoint inhibitors. There's data on both sides of that, early data. Um, but I might try to go with something like pembrolizumab with a view to switching over to uh, an FGFR inhibitor. And obviously, think about trials. I always think about trials. <laughs> Absolutely. I totally agree with you, Carla. Clinical trials should be always in our minds. A referral you know, patients to clinical trials can help us get even further. We just got a paper, except one of our mentees, Dr. McCracky, is another great guy, working with us at the University of Washington. Uh, got a paper accepted looking at exactly this question that you mentioned, Carla, the importance of liver metastasis and bone metastasis, and so that people on checkpoint inhibition do not do well, mm -hmm. uh, especially with those metastases. And this is a negative prognostic factor. Is the same applies with chemotherapy. Those patients do worse with liver and bone meds. So definitely we need more trials. In a patient like this, I would probably go uh, with an agent with higher response rate. Uh, so either erdafitinib with an activating mutation or infortum over sastuzumab uh, before Pembro. That's kind of a personal opinion. How, having said that, Pembro has level one evidence, as you said, with potential of durable response. Um, and because of the activating mutation, erdafitinib is an option. You mentioned, Silpa, about the concern with hemoglobin 9.2 and uncontrolled diabetes. I would definitely cancel the patient, try to control the diabetes better to reduce the chance of complications. And, uh, and of course, it becomes a question of how to sequence these agents. And if you use erdafitinib in that case, you can keep your options open and vice versa, of course. So let's see, we'll go to the next slide here. So let's say this patient would discuss all the options as we discussed, Pembro, Erda, and Fortumab, Salcituzumab. The patient goes for Erdafitinib based on that activating mutation. And uh, after, let's say, for eight months, had progression of Erdafitinib. Uh, and you do your, your tumor tissue profiling and also you see some HER2 overexpression. Would you entertain any anti-HER2 options or you will, will wait for more data in this disease color? What do you think? Mm, I would do, put the patient on a clinical trial. I wouldn't do it off study. It's too I, early. <laughs> I would also put the patient on clinical trial uh, for her to overexpression. But if the patient did progress on ordafitinib, um, we have options of sacituzumab, govotecan, uh, and cautious use of enfortimavidontin um, if liver meds are progressing. I, I agree. I think, you know, options, uh, standard of care options, uh, such as Mogovitikan or Fortmovidotin uh, in, in, in this particular patient would be great. Uh, and then, of course, we have the option of Fembrolizumab at some point. Uh, they haven't been. So I would go with those standard of care options uh, before here too, because it's not approved. However, clinical trials definitely is high in my radar, so I'm always excited about clinical trials in this disease. Let me ask you this question. So if the hemoglobin A1C was normal, let's say this patient had a hemoglobin A1C of 6, would that, would that change your approach in terms of enfortumab versus erda versus sachituzumab? Sure. I mean, I have a lot of experience with enfortumavidotin because we did work on the phase 1 trial. 
right? And you had patients who had basically exhausted all their options, were pretty sick, and got some pretty impressive responses from infortimab in that setting. Um, in my Canadian context, it's hard to get FGFR testing. That's been a major challenge. So EV is relatively easy as a choice to go to. I don't personally have a lot of experience with sesotizumab govotecan. Uh, you mentioned that the trial is ongoing. It's probably moved to the fourth line, right? So we have frontline uh, platinum-based chemotherapy, second line or maintenance, uh, abelumab or pembrolizumab, and then infortimab is sort of moved into into the third line setting. So the sesotizumab trial, I think, is moving sort of in the fourth line setting. But you know what your thoughts? Thanks, Kala. Shilpa? Yeah, I agree with uh, Dr. Sridhar. You know, patients with liver metastases, they really respond very quickly to infortimabidont, and so much so that even before the first scan, you can see them turning around quickly after cycle one. Now, the side effect profile can be uh, risky in a patient with these kind of comorbidities like rash and, you know, patients who have diabetes, which is uncontrolled. We, we have to be cautious. But EV is certainly, uh, we have treated more patients with infortimab than adafitinib, given the nature of the mutation frequency only in 10% patients. Um, and sacituzumab govotecan, I also agree with Dr. Sheeda. I have not used that much. You know, I, I reserve it for third line right now, but that is certainly an option in this patient. Great discussion. Thank you so much, both of you. And I will talk a little bit about safety considerations uh, in the interest of time here. And I want to point out that it's very important, as uh, Dr. Sridhar mentioned before, multidisciplinary aspect of care, even in toxicity management. So immune-related adverse events can happen with any checkpoint inhibitor. So keep that in mind, can affect any organ system, right? Thyroid, skin, gut, liver, pancreas, even a rare cases of, of myocarditis um, or CNS. So keep an eye on that and definitely involve the specialist, right, early on because it might require some multidisciplinary approach in the management of immune-related adverse events, education for the patient, education for the provider's team. So very important. There are guidelines like ASCO, NCCN, CT, and ESMO about how to recognize and manage optimally immune-related adverse events with immunotherapy. No matter what tumor type you're managing, is very important. And I have actually, you know, print, have print out from uh, guidelines in my clinic so be able to recognize and what to do uh, in real time. And we set up different systems in our institutions to involve other specialists, right? Rheumatology, dermatology, pulmonology, so on and so forth. And I think we talked a little bit before, but I want to point out a few things. It's important, again, to partner uh, I, maybe with a nutritionist. Hyperphosphatemia is a well-recognized side effect from erdafitinib and actually has been associated with high response rate to erdafitinib, high level of phosphate. However, you have to manage it, either with, with diet, low phosphorus diet, or with phosphate binders, depending on the level. So partnering with nutrition, giving patients tips about diet, low phosphorus diet, and if you need to, to add a non-calcium containing phosphate binder, like Sevillamer or others, can help manage the side effect. Ocular toxicities are important, so we're partnering with ophthalmologists. It's hard, sometimes hard to find them. Uh, but it's important to have this uh, uh, as an option that patients can see the ophthalmologist at baseline and then monthly for the first four months and then every three months thereafter because ocular toxicities can happen, dry eyes, some visual changes, or central surgery tenopathy, small proportion of patients, but can happen. Uh, and usually it's mild, goes away when you hold the drug, but it's something definitely important to keep an eye and follow the label, how to manage uh, those ocular toxicities. 
And for both adults, we talk a little bit about peripheral neuropathy, hyperglycemia, about 10%. Half hyperglycemia, about half of them can be life-threatening. So keep an eye on the glucose of those patients. And skin, because nectin-4 is expression of the skin, so partnering with dermatologists is important. Sometimes you may have prior checkpoint inhibitor. So what causes the skin rash? The prior checkpoint inhibitor or then fortumab. So keep an eye on those. Such as can neutropenia, as I mentioned, growth factor support or dose reduction and diarrhea uh, are common side effects. Important to manage them with hydration, education, and diarrhea medications. And again, I can't emphasize enough how important this is to talk all together about the optimal management of the patients. We have a few, uh, about 10 minutes left, and I have a few questions here for, so I can extract your wisdom as we go through. So let me go back into the uh, non-muscle based disease, Silpa. I will ask you, if you have a patient with T1 grade 3, non-muscle invasive disease, right, BCG unresponsive disease, who refuses cystectomy, cystectomy standard of care of those patients, but they refuse cystectomy. How do you approach these patients uh, along with your colleagues in urology? I think it is very important, again, to do multidisciplinary care for this patient. As you know, a few years ago, we as medical oncologists were not involved in the care of these patients. In fact, we did not even know what BCG unresponsive disease is because these patients would undergo cystectomy and never see us. And now that we have the option with uh, pembrolizumab approval as standard of care for patients uh, with BCG unresponsive disease, I think that is that is an option for this patient. But we have also seen a lot of exciting data with uh, results much better than what we have seen with pembrolizumab in the past. So I think uh, using clinical trials to enroll on such novel therapies is what we would do. I totally agree with trials. It's a huge thing. And we have pembrolizumab approved, but the uptake seems to be low so far. Um, but it's an option for those patients. Carla, have you used pembro in that setting? Um, just in the context of trials. So I haven't, uh, we participated in the Keynote 057 trial, but uh, not outside of trials. So these patients all go to trials. I guess the other thing from a multidisciplinary standpoint is whether radiation oncology may have some role to play here. You know, just as you've said that we have sort of not been involved in this space traditionally and now have been brought into it, um, maybe it's an important time to also make sure radiation oncology has a voice in this space. There may be some role to play for radiation as well. And I know there's been a lot of focus on pembrolizumab because it's approved, but there's also a number of other agents that have been evaluated in this setting, um, the non-muscle invasive BCG refractory space. So we'll have to watch all the trials. Absolutely, and uh, Dr. Schroeder, you mentioned that. So we have data with intravesical chemotherapy, uh, either single agent docetaxel or gemcitabine or combination, uh, and we, we lack a clinical trial comparing that approach with mm -hmm. intravenous pembrolizumab in BCG unresponsive. Uh, CIS, and uh, I think it's a great opportunity for a trial development there. But we discussed with the patient travesical chemo or intravenous pembro, and we, uh, of course, clinical trials are part of our discussion. Again, radical cystectomy is a standard of care. Now, um, Silpa, quick, uh, we have a few minutes, but quick answer. Do you use blood-based liquid biopsies to detect FGFR alterations? Or you do Only in cases where we don't have uh, adequate tissue or archival tissue is not available or patient has... Uh, no um, measurable disease, you know, where bone biopsies are difficult. I have used uh, that. We see lot and more, uh, lot more information now that there's decent concordancy between blood and tissue-based uh, analyses. But uh, for the most part, we are using the archival tissues. Thank you, Silpa. Actually, relevant question, Carla, for you. If you have a patient that the tumor tissue showed FGFR3 mutation, and you let's say you you decide to use Enfortumab or such tuzumab before dafitinib, 
Are you worried that you may select out the clones that do not express that mutation? Do you do liquid biopsy in that case? Yeah, it's a good question. I wish I could do liquid. I wish I could do biopsy at the time of progression on all of my patients and bank that and understand what the patterns are of resistance. But that's futuristic at the moment. So um, I think, you know, maybe, but we don't have the answer to that. So if a patient has a mutation and qualifies for the drug, I'm going to try the drug, um, watching for the toxicities, as you discussed very nicely. Very nice. And I think the toxicity profile with the medical comorbidities sometimes can help you make these decisions, yeah. ability to swallow pills, compliance with pills, mm -hmm. all these factors can play a role in the IV versus PO, for example, setting in insurance companies these days, right? What is being covered and whatnot. So um, a question for Kala, do patients who have progression on available maintenance after chemotherapy, level one evidence we discussed, have the same options with patients who actually get treatment with second light second inhibitor? Yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, anyone who has had disease progression with Avelumab maintenance or with uh, second-line pembrolizumab, I think they're very, very similar. And so their options going forwards are quite similar as well. Uh, and fortumab, vedotin, if they have an FGFR2-3 alteration, then erdofitinib. Um, of course, clinical trials fall into place there as well. Um, so I would say that they're pretty similar. I, I agree with you. I think patients who have maintenance available after platinum-based chemotherapy and have progression, people can move on to the next line of therapy, antibody drug conjugate or adafitinib selected patients. Yeah. So, Silva, you have a patient in the frontline setting and you, you help us develop this platinum ineligible criteria. If you have a platinum ineligible patient, would you ever give EV first line or not? Um, you know, based on the criteria that we have uh, developed, the creatinine clearance of 30 is the cutoff, right? And in EV studies, 30 was the minimum. So I would be a little hesitant, but, you know, as you've seen in the trials, that is usually the cutoff, and we still end up using these drugs in the real world. I think outside of a clinical trial, I would just use single-agent immunotherapy. Very, very. I would do the same thing. I would use sequence inhibitor alone and, or clinical trial. Um, we're waiting for the results of a randomized cohort K from the V103 trial, Pembro EV versus EV. Kala, how do you think about this data? Let's say it will come in a few months. I don't know when they will come, but let's say they come in a few months. How would you reconcile Pembro EV versus EV in a phase two trial? Yeah, I mean, I think there's going to be a few considerations. I think the EV plus Pembro is a really exciting combination um, that we've seen in sort of more advanced disease. I think you know, if we move these combinations earlier, I think we really have to pay close attention to toxicity. And that might impact, you know, what we do down the line. But we really have to wait for the results of the trials to know uh, how we're moving forwards. I mean, you know, and, and I think, you know, we have to be a little bit careful to just quickly adopt what's new. I mean, we kind of did that with the immune checkpoint inhibitors, and then we were sort of pulled back by the FDA to say, wait, wait, wait. Um, uh, and so, so I think, you know, right now our current standard at least in the metastatic setting, GEMSYS or GEMCARBO followed by Avelumab is actually pretty good. Like we're seeing pretty good outcomes in our patients. So I think we need to be cautiously moving forwards, optimistically moving forwards. Um, but that's sort of what I'd be thinking about. What's the toxicity of these, these agency? Efficacy looks encouraging, but what's the toxicity? I totally agree with you. And I think we have to follow the level of evidence as much as we can. And it's hard to have trials with overall survival benefit in this mm -hmm. disease. We saw four negative uh, first-line trials in the last few years, just showing how difficult it is. So yeah, definitely we're waiting for that. And we have the EV302 trial with Pembroid versus chemotherapy. We have to see what that shows when it reads out.
out. Uh, quick question, Silpa, any barriers in doing the next generation sequencing? Uh, because some patients, again, don't, don't get it. Any, do you see any barriers like cost or any other you know, burden to the healthcare teams? I think um, I would say that um, you know nowadays ordering it is not a barrier per se, but just the awareness that you know we should have awareness that even urologists should order it if then possible in localized disease. But for the most part, for metastatic disease, we don't uh, see any barriers in our practice, and I've noticed that our community oncology colleagues are also very much proactive in ordering next generation sequencing for the most part. But for bladder cancer, there needs to be more awareness about the FGFR inhibitor uh, option available, and um, they need to do it more. Kalani, Kalani. Yeah, so I think, I think, you know, from a global perspective, this is a big issue, right? There are some places where you can get uh, or you can order these tests without any issue, but other places where you really can't. So I think we need to try to level the playing field um, in getting the testing done. I think there's also a component of patient education around testing, right? So you get a mutation report from here to here, and it's not clear always which is a driver mutation. Even for us within the field, we're left kind of you know, trying to sort through that, let alone a patient, saying, well, I have this mutation, can I get this drug? You know, it doesn't necessarily work that way. So I think we have to work as a field with patients to try to, you know, ensure that there's sort of testing across the board, especially as we have these targeted agents. That's a great point. I think leveling the playing field and make sure there are no disparities in the access mm -hmm. to testing and to therapies is a very important global oncology issue. Mm -hmm. And I want to see a future where disparities will be eliminated, to your point. And an example in the adjuvant setting, we have an adjuvant trial with infigratin versus placebo and FGFR inhibitor. So nowadays, we may test patients post-radical surgery to look for that alteration if they're eligible for the clinical trial, of course. So a lot of uh, trials going on, and hopefully in the field we're going to keep improving the outcomes of our patients. Thank you so much, everybody, for joining. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. This activity is developed with our educational partner, the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash MWV. 860. This activity is supported through independent educational grants from AstraZeneca, Bristol Myers Squibb, Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs LLC, and Merck and Company Incorporated.